What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere. 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 Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. What an awesome documentary, and we just saw just two episodes of it, uh, one and two, on ESPN and ESPN2. It reminds me of being a Bulls fan back in the day, the early years before the championships, leading into the Michael Jordan years, all the way to the last dance. So much fun. We're talking about the last dance, brought to you by Coors Light. So glad that you're with us here on ESPN1000. Well, we can't talk about the last dance. We can't talk about the Bulls if we don't talk to someone that was there from the beginning with the Chicago Bulls during the time that Jordan started off through the championship years. A man who was a reporter for the Chicago Bulls right here on AM 1000 is David Schuster. And David is with us here on ESPN 1000. Shoot, as always, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. And I'm not embarrassed to say that actually I predated Michael Jordan and we actually went back to some really awful Bulls teams, you know, at the start of the 80s before he finally got there. And, boy, talk about a light switch going on once he got there. It's the best time that I've ever been involved with sports. I mean, to to witness him up close and personal like I did all those years is probably the best thing I'll ever do covering sports. Oh, well, since it predates you, let's talk about Bob Costas. How good a broad – did you think it would stick with Costas, <laughs> with, the, uh, with the canary jacket? Did you think that would work? <laughs> Back in the day, actually, it did work, to be honest with you. And you. You saw how schlubby some of the other reporters were, including probably myself, were dressed, you know, in some of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, after the games when they were all standing in front of Jordan's locker. I think I saw myself for about a half a second there mm-hmm. yet, uh, and last night's telecast. So, yeah, fashion was not uh, in vogue, if you will, with reporters, that's for sure. Boy, what just great memories. I'm glad that they they rolled it all the way back to Jordan's time in college in the early years, the empty stadium at Chicago Stadium. What what stood out most for you, Shu, in the first couple of episodes that we saw last night? Well, you know, I I heard you talk with your producer before going to break, you know, in the last segment about what things sort of surprised you. That really too much surprised me, although I got to say it was incredibly well done, both the first two episodes, and I'm really looking forward to the final eight over the next four weeks. Um, the only thing that really surprised me, and maybe I should have known it even at the time, was before the second game against Boston in that 86 series that he and Danny Ainge went out and played golf that day. Mm-hmm. Not surprised that Ainge beat him because Ainge is basically a scratch golfer, but I was a little surprised that he played. But when you found out all the, you know going forward that Michael used to play 36 holes on days of games at the, you know, the old Chicago Stadium, or certainly when he was on the road, he would find a golf course here and there. I guess it wasn't really surprising. I just didn't know that he played against Ainge the day before that uh, 63-point game. David Schuster with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. David, we have to paint the picture, and it was we got glimpses of it in the documentary about the Bulls before the before Jordan got there. What do you, what are your memories of the old <laughs> Chicago Stadium uh, before Jordan came in? Uh, well, pretty much like I said in last night's documentary, that it was farce to say the least. Um, yeah, I mean, the the old Chicago Sting. And boy, I was almost uh, crushed when they were the first team after all my years growing up. Nobody won in Chicago, and then the Sting was the first team to win a championship. I almost was let down by that. But yes, they had Carl Heinz Granitza and Pato Marhetic and Willie Roy and all that gang. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, when the Bulls played at the Chicago Stadium, I mean, you could sit anywhere you want. You could buy a, you know, a seat way upstairs in the second balcony, but you could basically sit behind the bench. There was only a couple thousand people you know, to see some really bad teams, to be honest with you. Then they started getting some players. I mean, David Green was, was a decent player from UCLA and Reggie Theus from UNLV. Um, you know, Orlando Woolridge certainly could score, but he could also give up points as much as he could score. Uh, Dave Corzine was there. So these are some of the names, and there were some really awful players to go along with those. But then, you know, Michael Jordan came along, and he, you know, he, he pretty much carried some really bad teams before he finally got some good talent around him. And you do have to give Jerry Krause some credit for that. And if you really want to see Michael Jordan at his absolute athletic prowess best, go back even before, you know, they started winning championships and go back to some of the games in the late 80s when Michael would just fly all over the place. And there wasn't a game, Jonathan, and you know this as well, there wasn't a game that he didn't do something where you just said to yourself, oh, my God, what did I just see? Because he did that on a nightly basis. He did it on a quarter-by-quarter basis, to be honest with you. So, so David, we need to be able to take a look at what we're watching with the documentary and tie it to the modern day. Because we asked the, the on a poll question at ESPN 1000 on Twitter, does this documentary help or hurt the Bulls organization for the future? Because you're around the young athletes all the time in the NBA. And so everyone talks, you know, it's just a big family reunion when everyone comes together and there's always talk. What's going on with this organization? Should I, should I, uh, should I play here? What's going on with packs? What's going on? So that that's a big, I think a big talking point when it comes to the bulls, can I hang my hat here? And so even though all of this stuff is from the past, how much does that affect the future for our tourists and company? Well, it's a good question, but I think just the fact that you made mention of Arturis Karnishevis, um, I think that's changing the complexion of this organization going forward. He has, a, he has a wonderful reputation, and I'm not saying that because, you know, he's the new man on the block. It happens to be true, and he has a lot of cachet in the NBA from his European days, from his working in the league office, from his working in the Denver Nuggets office. You know, he's been all over the place, and he's got a lot of contacts. If everything had stayed the same and, you know, it was still Gar and Pax, and listen, you, you know I'm close to John Pax, and so mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, really dig on him. But if everything stayed the same, I don't think the Bulls would ever get a free agent of note. They've always, you know, they've never been like the Canadian Mounties. They've never gotten their man. They've mm-hmm. always gotten the runner-up, if you will. I mean, Carlos Boozer, I guess, being the best of all their free agents over all the years. But they've never really gotten their man like they wanted to. There's a new sheriff in town in Karnishevis, and it'll be interesting to see you know, if his cachet is able to land somebody going forward. Now, the owner is still there, but actually Jerry Reinsdorf does have a decent reputation around the league, certainly with the rest of the owners, certainly with the league office, and he has shelled out a lot of money to a lot of players over the years. You know, in spite of what his reputation seemingly has been, he has shelled out a lot of money to a lot of players. So I just think the fact that Karnishevis is there going forward, I think that's going to help dramatically. So... I said at the time, I said on the air, that when you ha- always had the John Paxson interview, the exclusive interview with John Paxson every Christmas, he didn't come on with you this past Christmas. And I thought that that was a red flag. And I said, you know, if he's not come on the flagship with, with Schuster, there's something going on. Did you know that there might have been something going on? Because he never turned that down. That was kind of our conduit to find out through the first <laughs> early part of the season what's going on with the Bulls. Would you th- yeah. what, t- tell me um, what do you think yeah, of that? Actually, I, I did actually. Um, the, the hairs on my arms, if you will, did start going up when I found out that you know he was. 
sort of told he wasn't going to go on. It, it supposedly was not of his volition. So, you know, I think maybe the decision-making in this instance was taken out of his hands. At least that's how it was interpreted to me this time around. So, yeah, I mean, we all knew that something was going to happen, certainly by the uh, NBA All-Star Game in Chicago in February. Everybody knew that there was going to be a change at the top. To what degree, we weren't 100% sure. And, and as it turned out, it's exactly what it turned out to be. I mean, Karnishevis came in. He's got the keys to the Cadillac, the family car going forward. Pax is going to move into a consulting role. And, and John, you know, and you know him as well as I do, he mm-hmm. never really wanted to be front and center. He was sort of forced to because Gar Foreman fumbled the ball, if you will. So, you know, John had to, you know, be front and center, but more than happy to go into the background. He's always been a loyal soldier, has always been a team player. Um, I don't know what his salary is going to be going forward, but he'll still be part of the organization. But, you know, you will see him very few and far between going forward. It's just a very interesting time. Because, and I'm going to make the parallel here. Listen, I, I, we, we talked earlier about the Stan Albeck thing in Indianapolis. And that's, you know, there's a few things in that documentary I did not know. And I, I guess I was too young or did not read that in the paper at the time, the whole Stan Albeck and the time limits and the time restrictions on Jordan. I didn't remember that. I, I I tied that to Joe Kim Noah and Vinny Del Negro, and you you recall this, right? I mean, in Brooklyn, yeah. the Bulls are taking on, you know, taking on the uh, Bulls, and there was a ministry restriction because of the plantar fasciitis of Joe Kim mm-hmm. Noah and Vinny. Mm-hmm. Vinny was told, you know, we need to only have him out there for a, a certain amount of time, and Joe Kim just continued to play, and then the, the pulling of the tie incident. And I looked at that, and I looked, at, I thought about Stan Albeck, and I thought. My God, this is almost the same situation. It's like it's history repeating itself. It's it's crossed with the stopwatch and the same thing with Pax in the same position. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's that's unbelievable to me. Yeah, yeah, it, it was sort of a carbon copy kind of thing. I, I want to go back <laughs> to the Jordan uh, minute restrictions. And it was this obviously his second season in the NBA. And when he finally got his way, the Bulls called a press conference. I'm pretty sure it was after a White Sox game, if I remember. It was a midnight press conference in Jerry Reinsdorf's office at his old real estate office. He owned uh, Belcor, which is a real estate company. And so it was a midnight press conference in his office up in Skokie that we all had to scatter to get up there in time. And that's when they made the announcement that, you know, Michael was going to come back, but he's going to be on a minute's limit, yada, yada, yada. So this was all worked out behind the scenes. But you talk about surreal. This That'll be a chapter in the book that I'll never write, by the way. But a midnight press conference in Skokie's Belcor office to announce that Michael Jordan is back, but he's only going to be playing seven minutes each half. David, what was your relationship with some of those players uh, during the early time for Jordan? Because the, what I've been hearing is the way Jordan was comfortable with his cognac and his his cigar, the way he was laid back to telling the stories was similar to in his early years where he would give time to you and other reporters on what was on his mind for the Bulls. So what was your relationship with some of those players in that early year, those early years with the Bulls? Well, let me start with Michael first, if I can, Jonathan. But, you know, I've always said this. I've always found Michael Jordan to be a superstar both on and off the court. You saw in last night's documentary that he would stand in front of the locker with the scrum of reporters, and it was wave after wave after wave. And, I mean, it would be an hour of, you know, honestly the most inane questions that Michael would answer repeatedly. So I thought he was great. The other players, to be honest with you, once Michael, you know, became what he did, and it didn't take very long for everybody to know what he was, I almost don't even remember talking to a lot of those other players because as you know, also, you know, you go to the, you go to the stars of the team after the game, because that's where the sound bites 
you know, are supposed to come from. So, yeah, we might have talked to Orlando Woolridge and, and a few other players, Quinton Daly or, you know, eventually some of the other players, you know, before Pippen came, before Grant came, before Cartwright came, yada, yada, yada. But in the very, very, very early days, after Michael, everybody was just an absolute afterthought. Yeah. All right. Uh, so lastly, and I appreciate your time, I just want to get your, your thoughts on Jerry Krause. In the first couple of episodes of this documentary, has he been portrayed fairly? Yeah, he has, you know, both uh, positively and negatively. You know, he was a complex guy. Um, I actually got along with him really well. And, you know, periodically, we actually even went out to lunch. I don't know. He, he liked me for whatever reason. But he was a complex guy. Um, he was socially awkward. That goes without saying. You know, he, he brought a lot of that stuff on himself. Now the players absolutely, they, did they make fun of him? And sometimes it was embarrassing. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, and like I said, he brought a lot of this on himself. But if you take a look at some of the moves, and I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not going to go with him 100% that organizations win championships because without Michael, you probably don't win any of the six championships. But he did build around Michael. It took a while, to be honest with you. He did make the trade to get uh, Pippen in the same tr- uh, draft as he got Horace Grant. He did trade Oakley to get Bill Cartwright in the second three-peat. He obviously got Dennis Rodman, and that was a gamble and a half on his part. He finally, you know, reeled in uh, Tony Kukoc from after watching him play, you know, in his early years over in Europe. So he did make moves. He brought in some other players also. A lot of people don't remember he brought in uh, Bison Daly, who was, you know, known uh, as Brian Williams originally, he helped, you know, the Bulls win one of their, I think it was the last championship, if I'm not mistaken. So he did make some moves bringing certain guys in. Again, they don't win any of those, I don't think, without Michael, obviously. But I thought Jerry Krause did do things that helped them win and get over the hump to build around Michael. But again, he was socially awkward, and, and the players made fun of him all the time. I couldn't talk about this documentary without you because you were there from the beginning and all through those championship years, you were amongst the the media that was covering um, the Beatles, which are the Bulls. So (laughs) I'm glad you spent some time, Shoot. Thanks so much for coming on the show, as always. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I appreciate it. There is David Schuster. He was a reporter here at uh, at 1000, covering the Bulls during that Bulls run and before, of course. Just a a great reporter uh, that has been able to cover a lot of the championship teams uh, for Chicago, and he was right there with the Chicago Bulls, the good, bad, and the ugly, <laughs> covering the Chicago Bulls right there at courtside. Uh, talking about the last dance brought to you by uh, Coors Light. Uh, more on Scotty Pippen, Nick Friedel at the bottom of the hour at 930 right here on UTH. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. Yeah. Brought to you by Coors Light, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. We'll hear from Nick Friedel, who covered the Bulls for a decade. And, of course, he watched the documentary and wrote about the documentary and some Bulls notes um, before the documentary took place last night. So we'll talk to Nick about what he saw uh, right here on ESPN 1000. Boy, it was just interesting to watch. And, again, it's just the first two episodes. What about the other eight? Um I want to talk about Scottie Pippen before we hear from Nick. I um, the Scottie Pippen story is it's very complicated. We we've already documented and talked about the contract situation, and I don't care which side of the aisle you fall on that. As far as Reinsdorf should have been able to pay more, I've, I said at the time that 
even though it was a seven year, 18, $19 million deal, whatever it was, it was paltry. And that's a contract that should have been torn up and renegotiated. Even though Reinsdorf, as he said in the documentary, and I remembered as a kid, as a young person, wasn't a kid, as a young person reading this in real time, don't come back for another contract. If you're going to sign this, this thing will be an old contract and others will going to get paid more than you by the time you sign this. But Pippen had to sign that for his family. He wanted to be able to take it because it wasn't for himself. He was going to get paid in either way, but his family needed that money because it was based on the documentary that we saw. They were dirt poor. Poverty uh, was, was really prevalent in his life. As we saw two people in his family were handicapped that could not get around. And so he was taking care of his family. And I think that that is something to be said. And so he took care of his family. Eventually he got the balloon payment. He was able to get paid by the bulls toward the end and other places. He was able to get over $110 million. So if people can trip on that contract, fine. Reinsdorf should have been able to renegotiate it, or you can just stand by the contract and know that you can earn more. At some point he was able to earn more, but see, here's the thing. Again, Pippen, Pippen is a person that always thought he was undermined. It's one thing for us to talk about Jerry Krause. Pippen always thought from the jump, as we saw, man, you know, I'm not getting respected because I should be the man, even though Michael was already the man that coming out of central Arkansas, you're just a small town kid coming in, playing with the greatest player in the world. And he had to take a back seat and he was able to adjust that back seat and still a frontline player defensively, strong offensively. But along the way, this whole thing where, where Pippen and, and Krause, they were button heads. Hey, Jordan and, and Krause were button heads. So that wasn't anything new. Pippen was, was pissed at Krause because he felt that he should have been respected more financially. And so he took it out on Krause. And, and, but the relationship was frayed between the two. It wasn't just a one-way street. It comes across like, hey, you know, Pippen was really laying it on Krause. Well, you know, Jordan and Pippen gave it to Krause a lot because Krause was not a great people's person. He was not. And you saw that in the documentary that the things that Krauss was saying in those, in those press conferences is something that you wouldn't hear from a general manager, maybe some owners, but not from a general manager. They would rather lie to you than just be like, you know, we're always trying to get better. Uh, we're trying to get better as an organization, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And it's kind of like, wow, that was, that was wild. Um, the, the headache issue where the, had the migraine headache, felt like he should be able to get the last shot and not Tony Kukoc. That was wrong uh, for Pippen to say, I'm not going to F up my summer. I'm just going to, when I, when the season starts, I won't be playing. I'll be in a suit. You saw how the bulls are struggling a little bit on the defensive end against bad teams early on. And they got better without Scotty. Because Scotty's, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to my summer up. Yeah, I understand that Scotty, but that was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong thing to do. Should have had that surgery in the, in the beginning, uh, in the summer. That way he's ready for the season to start. You know, I'm sure Jordan had to feel some kind of way like, dude, how come we didn't get your surgery? And, and he didn't. And so there's a lot of things with Scotty that was unsavory to me. You, I respect the player, but the business decisions that he made were wrong. And then that time, it was a tug of war between him and Frank Thomas as far as who could be unlikable, quite frankly. And the whole Frank Thomas thing, it's a whole different conversation, a different show. But you just have to know that when you're working with the greatest player in the world, in Michael Jordan, 
you got to be ready with him. You won't be able to be as, as good as he is. You won't be able to supersede him, but you should have gotten yourself in a position to get ready. And there were some pitfalls there with Pippen that had me, you know, shaking my head at the time. Like, dude, you're going to get paid. You sign this contract and Ryan Zorf wants to hold you to that contract. All right, cool. Fine. So just keep playing, stay healthy enough. And eventually you will get your money. The, the contracts with Jordan and Pippen was a talking point in my mid twenties when I was watching and covering this team. And I know that that was a big, big bone of contention with fans. Like, why don't you pay these guys? And this is why the whole Reinsdorf's cheap thing resonated with the bulls. Even to this day, it, it wasn't right, but I would have torn up the contract, especially when the TV money came in and the bulls were making money. Like everybody else hand over fist. When the TV money came in and the salary cap started to rise. Yeah. Hey, Scotty, let's try to renegotiate. You know, but Reinsdorf held him to that contract. But that that issue between Pippen and Reinsdorf and Kraus, and then some of the decisions that Pippen made. You heard what he just said there in that documentary. Like, what do you mean you f you don't want to f up your summer? You're trying to win a championship. And then the the press conference in that documentary where he was talking to the press and was like, um, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be back or not. Like, you going to leave a championship team? It was it was a headache. Eric, you're you little you too young to remember this, but I know that you had a problem with Pippen, but he was a headache at, at times for the Bulls. Right. So like I looking back, I remember so in ninety seven I was ten years old. So like I remember not liking or like everyone being upset with Pippen, the no tipping Pippen, he's a bad teammate. But I never knew really why. Like I heard the stories and everything like that. And then now you see him now and he's this affable like, well-mannered, well-spoken, fun-to-listen-to-guy-talk-basketball. So it's like, where did all this vitriol come from? And now watching all this, I'm like, all right, now I see why, like, the the buzz around was how bad of a teammate Pippen was. Winning but yet disgruntled. And, and that, that was different, right? It was uh, it was interesting at the time. But, I mean, I respect him as a player, but some of his business decisions and comments he made, it, it wasn't great. You know, I was like... It was like 50-50 on Jordan, uh, on Pippen at the time. Because I was like, what's, what's up? I mean, this is a championship team. Keep it rolling, right? Just be, you know, right until the wheels fall off. But he always felt that he was disrespected from a money standpoint. He wasn't getting the uh, the attention that he deserved. This uh, interesting time for the Bulls. More on the Bulls with Nick Friedel. And don't forget, uh, tomorrow there will be no show, but I'll be back Wednesday. We'll get a chance to talk about the uh, NFL draft and the uh, Bears with the NFL draft preview between 7 and 10 on Wednesday night right here on UTA. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. What a terrific documentary we saw last night with The Last Dance on the Chicago Bulls. Nick Friel wrote about uh, the Chicago Bulls uh, for many years and wrote, uh, leading into this documentary, some things that we could see. And we turn to Nick here on ESPN 1000 Under the Hood. Hello, my friend. Hello, my man. Boy, what a, a terrific documentary last night, huh? It was really, really enjoyable in hoodie. I don't know many people who have seen the whole thing because I know they're still working on those last couple episodes, but I, I know a few people uh, who have been able to, to sneak a peek at what's been done so far, and they all say that 
it just gets more interesting over time. So it's a credit to uh, the the staff that put uh, everything together that the first two came off as well as they did, and they're just building up for what will be even more entertaining down the line. But on top of the fact it made you forget about what's going on in the world for a couple hours, you're just learning stuff. And, I mean, I was around that team for for a long time, but I hadn't even heard a few of those stories, and I know that more of that kind of stuff is going to come out in these next few episodes. So it was fun, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, the next run like everybody else. What did you learn that was very interesting to you in those first two episodes? The biggest takeaway for me, Hoodie, is just how much the the Krause versus versus Phil and mm-hmm. and Michael and Scotty uh, stuff reminded me of Tibbs versus the front office years later. And of course, I'm going to. Uh, internalize that kind of stuff because that's what I lived. I lived through Tibbs versus Garin Pax versus the organization. And what was so striking to me was that Jerry Krause didn't feel like he was getting enough credit. He felt like the credit was going to Michael, to Scotty, to the players. And you go back in time and that's exactly what pissed off Garin Pax so much. Uh, They felt like the players weren't getting enough credit, but they also felt like they weren't getting enough credit. They felt like Tom was getting too much credit. And there are plenty of storylines that will come out of the documentary that already did. I mean, I I knew about the Scotty contract, but I did not know just how bad it was uh, and how bad it had gotten over time. Uh, And Scotty admits, hey, I want to take care of my family, and nobody can fault him for that. But, oh, my gosh, to think how many guys were making so much more money than he was, and he was stuck. And and Jerry Reinsdorf, as is his right, said, hey, you signed the deal. But that 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 carried over the way that it did. I mean, you've got Michael coming into that last year making 33 mil, and Scotty's on a deal where he's making two. (laughs) So... Those are the two couple things out of lots that stuck out to me. But the the fight for for credit uh, was striking to me because I lived uh, that part of it a few years ago. I think we should dig into that a little deeper because this is something that we haven't talked about before. We've talked about the resume of Gar and Pax in power with the Bulls. And make a, definitely a disconnect between Gar Pax and the players and Tom Thibodeau in that era. So, I guess the the question is: is that when did you find out that maybe Gar and Pax felt like Tom Thibodeau's coach of the year? This team's getting to the playoffs. Thibodeau's doing more with less than any coach in the league for several years. When did you think that there might be some jealousy or some envy on the part of Gar and Pax in which they were now on the same wavelength, the same plane with uh, Gar Foreman as far as credit and building this together? Yeah, Hoodie, I'll tell you exactly when it, it became more pronounced to me was in that year when Derek never came back. And remember, they ended up trading the uh, wall and... D.J. Augustine came in, and everybody had written him off. And the Bulls, 
to the players' credit, to Gar and Pax's credit, to Tibbs' credit, they kept playing. They kept playing. Uh, and they they found a way. And, and they, they kept holding out hope that that Derek would come back, but we know how that ended up. He, he didn't feel comfortable. Uh, and that's his decision. And uh, But as far as the the Gar and Pax and the Tibbs stuff, when it started to, when you started to notice it a little more was that year because there was so much praise for Tibbs all over the league. Uh, and I never felt like the players took it as personally uh, as Gar and Pax did. I, you know, players just, they went out and played and they trusted in the system and they, they, they trusted Tom. I mean, he had earned that trust over time. But, but what became clear was that Gar and Pax were sitting there going, our players deserve more credit. And while they never said this, what they also meant was, we deserve more credit. We're finding these players. We're, we're the ones that are pulling the strings uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and they're going out and, and winning. And that, that's when you started to go, okay. There's a little bit of jealousy here, uh, and and if you'll recall, then you got into remember the the Lakers had asked for permission to talk to Tom. Yes, and you're thinking, why in the what the Lakers? What you know? And and I think there was always a part of Tom that that wanted to end up in L.A. down the line. But but when that was going on, you're thinking the Bulls are doing really well. Like Derek's now coming back the following season. Why is this happening now? Well, it was happening because those seeds of discontent were being planted on both sides. But as far as when it started, there was so much hope and hype around that team. And they exceeded expectations when Derek won the MVP. And, and you're thinking maybe they have a chance to win a title uh, that next year, the lockout year. And then he got hurt, and then that next year it was a mess. But they still found a way to win. But that's when that's when you started to see what was coming on both sides. Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand-new ESPN Chicago app. So here's a little gem. And you would think that I would have known every story in the documentary because, you know, Nick, I'm, I'm ancient. So you would just believe <laughs> I, I would be able to know every story. But but there was that story of Pax's game-winning shot against Indiana, right? This is when Jordan Co- is coming off of the foot injury, right? Mm-hmm. And so so Pax hits that jumper. This is, all goes with the Stan Albeck being threatened by Jerry Krause saying, you can only play Jordan 14 minutes you play him a, a second over, I'll fire you right on the spot because they're trying to make sure that Jordan was healthy. Jordan went above and beyond to try to make sure that he was uh, healthy. So that's why he went to Chapel Hill, worked out to make sure that he was beyond ready, uh, going away from the doctor's orders in Chicago to do what he had to do to rehab and come back. Well, here's the thing that's um, a disconnect for me. So John Paxson hits that shot, and everybody on that team knew that if Jordan played a second more, that Albeck would be fired. How come John didn't learn that working with Vinny Del Negro? Hoodie, I had the, a, a similar thought. Because that's because you got to tell that story about Joe Kim Noah yeah, for those that yeah, don't know. The, the, the story was, and this goes back to uh, that that last year of Vinny. The Bulls were pushing for a playoff berth, and in that last year, 
heading into that final week, the last couple months of the season at least, Joe Keane was battling, battling plantar fasciitis. And his he really he couldn't even walk that well. And the Bulls made it clear to Vinny, hey, you've got a minute's limit on Joe. I don't remember the exact number of minutes, but I want to say it was something in the mid-20s. You, you can't exceed this mark. And uh, if I recall, and it's been years, I mean, we're talking about a decade ago, we were in New Jersey, and Joe had hit his, his minutes limit. And, and and this goes back, uh, you know, they had already had the – people remember the the exchange they had post-game after a game. Joe had gone over his minutes limit, uh, and that's when Pax uh, and Vinny got into a big blow-up in the, the coach's office, and Pax, I guess, was, was pulling on Vinny's tie, and – and that became a national story. But what I remember, because it was in the, the context of being late in the season, we're in New Jersey, and the game either went into overtime or double overtime, and Joe ran out of minutes. And Lindsey Hunter, I think, if, I, if I'm remembering all this right, Lindsey Hunter was on that team, and I guess... Uh, he, like Gar had gone to him, or there was some there was some communication between Gar, who was at the game, and Lindsey Hunter, and it was made very clear Joe is, is done for the night. He's not coming back, and I think he had exceeded uh, his his minutes limit by a, a few seconds or a minute. But uh, he, Vinny knew after the exchange that he had already had with uh, with Pax that 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 wasn't going to happen again. And that is, it just, it was so stunning. It was just like what we were talking about with the, the Tibbs and versus Gar and Pax. That moment of Stan Albeck saying, hey, if, they, if I put you in one more second, I'm going to get fired. I think everybody already felt like Vinny was going to get fired at the end of that year. But even he wasn't going to push it to a point where there would be some fireworks post-game uh, at the Meadowlands <laughs> in that moment. So uh, I was definitely going back in time trying to remember that, but it was it was very similar. What had pissed Pax off the most, dating back several months prior to that episode, was that Finney had exceeded the minutes on Joaquin. And I can still remember, now we're going way back in time, but Vinny is sitting there telling me, you know, it doesn't matter if he played. 16 minutes or 20 minutes, his, his foot is going to hurt the way uh, it's going to hurt after a game. And, and Pax's point and the organization's point was, hey, we gave you an order and you disobeyed the order. Uh, and again, as far as the relationship between the front office and the coach, that was one of those tipping points where you went, well, there's no coming back from this. And it was awkward uh, and it felt awkward the rest of that season. Yeah. So, yeah, I just... I guess my bottom line on that is is that Paxson lived through that as a player and did the same thing Krauss did to Stan Albeck. And, and actually, this is somewhat the same result because Albeck gets fired anyway, and so they, they move on. But just you would just think that if you're John Paxson, it doesn't matter if you have respect for Krauss or not, you remember how bad that was. Jordan was getting hot in that fourth quarter, should have yeah. stayed in the game, and they still would have won the game. But if it wasn't for some just awkward shot that Paxson puts up, you know, they don't win it. But the the idea that if it was just another minute 
where Jordan was hot, was getting up and down the floor in Indiana, and and he still should have been in there. And then the same thing goes around, puts the stopwatch on Vinny. It's just amazing, the symmetry in that. I just thought that was interesting. Well, and, and you know, Hoodie, that's the, the, the strangest thing to me about those first two episodes of the documentary is the parallels through the years. Yeah. We just identified two of them. It was... It was the Tibbs years and the the disconnect between the front office. It was the Vinny couple of years and the disconnect on on the time Joe Keem should be on the floor. And then, of course, then <laughs> at the end of that second one, we're hearing the story about Jerry Krause inviting Tim Floyd to uh, his daughter's wedding and not inviting uh, Phil Jackson and his wife. And you're thinking, how many times did Gar mention uh, his his relationship with Fred Hoiberg long before yeah. Fred Hoiberg became coach. It, it, it just it's so weird. It's it's that's just the way the Bulls have operated over time. But history always seemed to repeat itself uh, on varying levels. But but that part of it, that wedding story, and knowing how convinced Gar was that Fred Hoiberg was going to come in and succeed instantly. And then that didn't happen, just like it didn't happen for, for Jerry Krause and Tim Floyd. That that was stunning as well. Nick Friedel from ESPN and ESPN.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. Nick Friedel from ESPN and ESPN.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. You know, Nick, um, I I wonder what a 20-something free agent to be looks at when all the basketball community, even people that don't like basketball, people are just interesting in the story. I think I watched that documentary last night. I wonder what a young player looks at when they see the story of Jordan, the last dance, the the blow up with the organization with Krause and Reinsdorf versus the players and Phil Jackson. I wonder, is that a detriment or a help to the Bulls organization when others are are looking at this, wanting to have an NBA home because, you know, the Bulls are going to go full throttle to try to find free agents. I wonder, does this doc help or hurt that? Hoodie, it's a really interesting question, and I would say on the surface it helps because a player would want to come back to Chicago and reawaken the, the dynasty again. Everybody loves Michael Jordan. So many players hold him in the very highest regard, and I'm sure they, uh, a part of their ego thinks, well, let me be the guy that gets the Bulls back all the way to the top. But in the same breath, what's so fascinating, not only about our conversation right now, but in what we'll continue to see in the, the documentary over the next few weeks, there's Jerry Reinsdorf. <laughs> Jerry Reinsdorf is answering the questions. Yeah. And Jerry Reinsdorf is still the guy. Now, I would say uh, the, the guy now day to day and the guy who's making so many of the decisions is Michael Reinsdorf, his son. Uh, and Mike has a chance now to put his own stamp on the organization. He has a chance to spend the money on a whole 
different level than his father did, as, not just as far as the team on the floor, I mean internally uh, within the organization on a day-to-day basis, uh, improving the scouting department. Uh, you, you make the decisions that you make uh, to change the front office. That's a nice first step, but this ties into the question. And this team is so badly in need of an image rehabilitation. Because, Hoodie, to your point, as far as a, being a potential detriment, the the knock on the Bulls dating back years, years and years, we're going three decades now, is that the organization on the whole is cheap. And they're not going to spend what other teams in the league will spend. Now, in defense of Jerry Reinsdorf, he said publicly, Many times, I, you know, I go on the luxury tax if it means that the team was ready to contend. Oh, that's all well and good. My point to you, having covered that team for so long and having talked to people around the league over the years, is the the image of the Bulls on a grand scale inside the league is that they don't run the business well that they only care about the bottom line. And that's why this is such an interesting time in present and why they're at a crossroads. Because for the first time in a long, long time, Hoodie, you turn on the TV, those seats are empty. The cash cow that was the Chicago Bulls filling up the United Center night after night after night after night, it's gone because people got so angry about the way things were run, so angry that Garm Pax stayed in power for so long, so angry that they messed up drafts and free agent signings uh, since uh, they they traded Jimmy and the rebuild has gone nowhere. There are a lot of reasons. The point is, when you're watching that documentary and you're seeing there's Jerry Reinsdorf, for as loyal as he has been over the years, this team right now is in bad shape. Uh, and they need to turn things around. And in order to do that in the modern NBA, you've got to spend. And it's not just on the the salary cap and the players you bring in. You've got to spend everywhere internally. And that's where I'm curious to see if Mike Reinsdorf is going to change the philosophy a little bit from what his father said for so long. It's um, it's a Rocky Works theory, isn't it? If you're yeah. Michael Reinsdorf, it's, hey, you know what, my dad's still lingering. And, and Jerry does not come across all that well in the documentary because he's part of that combination with he and Krauss making some decisions. Now, of course, in some ways, Reinsdorf said, you know, let's keep this going. He was smart enough to understand that, but he believed so much in Krauss and Krauss's ability to try to turn things around that, well, it went into the dumpster. Um, I, I'll, I'll say this, just piggybacking on what you were talking about regarding the Bulls and the perception that's out there with the Bulls. You know, in all organizations, including the one that that you cover with Golden State, there's always an alumni factor, right? There's always someone to be able to talk to agents and current players like, yeah, you know, this is a cool place to play because I remember when. And the, what, what do the Bulls have? Bulls have uh, Bob Love. The Bulls have Tony Kukoc and Horace Grant. Scotty's not doing it anymore for whatever reason. He's not the ambassador. But you do have a couple of full, former Bulls from the championship years. But you don't have Phil. You don't have Michael. You don't have Rodman. You don't have some of those key players that were instrumental in getting that, that six titles in eight years. And so that's that's something to be said, too, about the Bulls organization, right? You got a, you got a, uh, you know, Arturis coming from Denver. 
You have Michael Reinsdorf in the mix, but it's not the same as a lot of those former Bulls players being able to talk to the current players saying, you know what, this is a great place to play. You're absolutely right. Uh, the, the championship buffer that had been there for so many years post-Michael and Scotty, that's gone now. Those days are gone. And as, as fun as it is for so many people, and certainly within the organization, to relive the glory days here in the next month or so, the reality is when you look at the Bulls, aside from that stretch with Derek when he was healthy and Tibbs and Joe Keem, that was a nice run for a few years of being very good, but but they didn't win a title there either, uh, in large part because Derek got hurt and it altered the, the, the course of the franchise. But back to your point about Kraus, and this is why even as we're going through it right now, it's you just kind of shake your head at, at the parallels again. Mike Reinsdorf knew for four or five years the reputation the image that Garam Pax had throughout the league. And it didn't just come from from the media. It, it came from former players. It came from agents. It came from, came from executives. The, the image of the Bulls in the last few years was not very good. But the Reinsdorfs are very loyal. Uh, Mike trusted them as talent evaluators. He thought that uh, they could turn it around. But he knew what the, the perception was. And he decided not to make a change anyway. That's why I don't fault him. I think it's a very good thing for the Bulls that Arturis comes in and he's going to get to pick his own staff and he'll make his decisions. That's that's very good. That's a good first step again. But the issue is they have known for years uh, how Garm packs are perceived and they stuck with him anyway. And I think that's really why fans got so upset. But that's what's so intriguing about all this because – they had the power to change the narrative. And, okay, good, now they have. But it's 2020, Hoodie. Mm-hmm. When when Fred Hoiberg came in, and Gar promised that he was a great communicator and he'd get him up and down the floor, blah, 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 blah. And Fred struggled really quickly. And you know, internally, they, they knew that Fred wasn't the guy, but Fred had a five-year deal. And they thought, all right, maybe Fred can turn it around. That, that didn't happen. My friend, I'm glad we spent some time uh, talking about this. I just thought that was really fascinating. I hope to get a chance to talk to you about the next uh, level of this uh, doc because it's uh, it's some it's some things I did not know and some things that uh, I think is really shining a light on the greatness that was the Bulls. So I appreciate it as always. Anytime, my man. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.